On the afternoon of March 9th this year, our family's life changed dramatically when my father passed away. Now, my dad was 93 years old, so it was not unexpected that he would depart. And after several years of declining health and the onset of dementia, I must say it was not unwelcome that he move on. Nonetheless, our family dynamic, and those of you who have lost loved ones understand this, our family dynamic has changed, and, um, and many of you have experienced something similar to that. On December the 6th, 1917, the city of Halifax and the people of this city were tragically changed when the French munitions ship Mont Blanc collided with another ship and shortly thereafter exploded in the harbor, killing 1,800 people, leveling much of this city. And from that day forward, Halifax was altered. In 2011, September 11th, the country of the United States was dramatically changed and affected in so many ways when terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, as well as the Pentagon, killing over 3,000 people and forever changing that country's sense of security and its perspective on the Islamic religion and its people. All of this to kind of help us understand, change happens and it happens so unexpectedly, so quickly. But nothing in all of the world's history, nothing, has changed the world so dramatically as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which occurred almost 2,000 years ago. Follow along with me as I, um, as I read from the passage. It's, it'll be on the screen. You can open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. We'll begin verse 13 and read on into the fifth chapter. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring him back with him, the believers who have died. Now, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And first the Christians who have died will rise from the graves. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Now, concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying, everything is peaceful, everything is secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. But, you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and the night. So be on your guard, 
Not asleep like the others. Stay alert, be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. What Paul is saying is that the resurrection has radically altered the worldview of everyone who believes that it took place. Our worldview is our philosophy of life. It's our conception of how the world works. And Paul says that believing in the resurrection of Jesus changes how people face death and how they live their lives. And that pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? How we face death and how we live our lives. Let's talk about death for a few moments. Not really a topic that most of us enjoy talking about. I've done a lot of funerals in my day, not unlike Greg. And for those who I would classify as non-believers, there are basically two responses to the death of a loved one. Uh, there, There are those people who remain kind of resolute in their belief that there is nothing after death. Now, a lot of those folks tend to avoid funerals altogether, but sometimes they might have a gathering to celebrate the life of their loved one, and in that time, they will make every effort to emphasize the finality of death. And please, they say, no prayers, no mention of God. And and you ask, well, why would I be involved in a funeral like that? Well, sometimes they're friends of ours. And even though they don't share our belief, they want me to kind of oversee the celebration of their loved one's life. But I tell you, it's very difficult when you have a reason for hope and someone says, okay, I want you to kind of oversee this service, but uh, uh, no prayer, no mention of God. Um, It's uh, challenging, isn't it, Greg? Yeah. Uh, Then there are those people who, who don't believe in Jesus, but they say they believe in God. However, their belief of God really uh, bears no resemblance to the God of the Bible. Their God tends to be one kind of of their own making. They've created an image of God that they are comfortable with. But that tends to uh, lead them to kind of fantasize about their loved one who has died. And so uh, I often hear people at a funeral expounding on what's happened to their loved one. And they'll say things like, well, they're in a better place. And I always want to ask them, well, why do you think so? But people want to believe that, right? They want their loved one to be in a better place. Or, or they'll say things like, now they're an angel. And I think, really? How do they get to be an angel? Who made them an angel? Um, they'll say things like, um, oh, my loved one or my, my mother, my grandmother, they're, they're, they're watching over us now. They're directing our family Or perhaps they have an idea that they're frolicking in their favorite vacation spot with all the friends who've, you know, gone on ahead or some other kind of mishmash. Um, I always find it very interesting, the fantasies that people come up with about what's going to happen to their loved ones when they don't believe in Jesus. But those who believe in Jesus, they believe that he did conquer death have a much different perspective. They, they have hope. And, it, and it's not an imaginary fantasy kind of hope. They have hope that's rational. It's a hope that has substance to it. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul is addressing in this passage as he writes to the Christians at Thessalonica. Followers of Jesus have a reason for hope. And that reason is that Christ himself conquered death. He was resurrected and he promised that he will return. And it's a return that will unite, Paul says, those believers who have died and those people who are still alive when Jesus returns. In fact, Paul even goes so far as to offer us a timeline, which he says Christ himself has provided. He says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. First, those who are dead will rise. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. But what's the result of that belief? Well, it totally changes how we face death, particularly when a loved one of ours dies, but also our own death. It removes our our fear of eternal separation, our eternal separation from those we love, our eternal separation from God himself. It erases our desire to create imaginary sentimental fantasy. It negates our need to kind of settle for the time that we have on earth. Well, 80 years, that's it, then it's over. Instead, those of us who put our trust in Christ can face death with confidence, with hope, even with anticipation for what God has in store for us. Um, Our middle son, Ryan, who we were just visiting, he and his family, in Montreal, is completing his doctoral studies at McGill, and he he hopes to teach theology at some point at university when he's done. But earlier on in his academic journey, he did his undergrad uh, degree in religious studies at the University of Calgary. And while he was engaged in that degree, a couple of friends of ours warned us that the best way for a person to lose their faith was to enroll in religious studies at the university. That's not really what any Christian parent wants to hear. So towards the end of the program, his mother began to grill him about how his beliefs were holding up under the, uh, the rigors of uh, the religious studies program. He gave us this response. He said, you know, as I've studied various religions, there, there are many intriguing aspects in the different religions. But Christianity soars above all others for one reason. No other religious belief has hope. Only Christianity. It stands alone in this regard. So, Paul wants us to understand that in the face of death, we have every reason for confidence. We have hope. But this is only half of what Paul wants us to get here. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus change how we face death, it also is intended to transform how we live our lives. In the second half of the text I read, Paul reminds us that the return of Jesus will be as unexpected as, as what? A thief. Uh, Anybody anybody been robbed? Had their home broken into? Mm -hmm. And uh, did you expect that? No. That's the whole point, right? We wouldn't be robbed if we knew they were coming. Paul reminds us that the return of Jesus, though it will be unexpected, shouldn't alarm us because 
We've been forewarned. We have been illuminated. We are children of light, he says, because of our belief in the resurrection. And so because of that, he says, we ought to be living differently than people around us who don't have this belief. And he mentions three ways that we should live differently. Let me just briefly outline them for you. Number one, he says, we as Christians ought to live with accountability. We're aware that the risen Lord is going to return, right? Jesus himself makes that point over and over again in his teaching, his parables during his ministry. None of them have more clarity than in Luke 19 when he tells the story of a nobleman who is called away to be crowned the king. And in his absence, the nobleman says to his servants, I want all of you to look after my resources. The text says, my silver. And uh, you, you remember how the story unfolds and how the servants managed the funds of the nobleman who was going to become a king. Jesus tells that story so that you and I understand that we live with accountability, knowing that Jesus is coming back. We will be held accountable. We're held accountable for both the spiritual and the physical gifts that he blesses us with. We live with an awareness that he will return and it will be unexpected to most people, but not for those of us who know he's coming back. We know there's going to be an accounting. And so we live believing that we are responsible primarily to whom? The returning king. That's different from everyone else that you live beside, that you work with, who doesn't believe in Jesus. Because they think they're only accountable to themselves and perhaps in some small fashion to their community as good citizens. But we who are believers understand our first level of accountability is to God himself, the returning king, Jesus. We, Paul says, we, we don't belong to darkness and night. We're not unaware. We live in the light, aware that this day of accounting is coming and therefore we must be ready and prepared and manage what God has given us with care because the crowned, crowned king is coming back. <coughs> Second thing that sets us apart is living differently, Paul says, is that we live with alertness. We're aware that uh, the world that we live in is rife with distractions. There are constant temptations for us to take our eyes off the road of life, specifically this narrow way that God has called us to follow. It's, It's not unlike driving your car distracted, right? Don't use your cell phone because you take your eyes off the road, you're going to get into trouble very quickly. So Paul says, or he doesn't say, but he's suggesting we need to have this kind of alertness and readiness in the way we live our lives because there's a myriad of diversions that can lull us into into the ditch of complacency or reroute us onto the dead end of debauchery. Those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, though, should be alert to those distractions. We need to be clear-headed rather than groggy with sleep, or worse, 
in some drug-induced coma, as it were. And the reason is because our worldview has been enlightened. We know that this life, this world that we live in, this is only the preview. This is not the main event. It's the testing ground for the ultimate reality that still lies ahead. And we must not be sidetracked from that ultimate objective. Finally, the passage reminds us that we, we need also to live with assurance. Okay? Assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance of our salvation. Assurance that our sins are forgiven. Assurance that we are right with God. Perhaps we haven't thought about or talked about enough how transformative that ought to be. We talk about the resurrection changing everything, but those of us who believe in the resurrection need to understand that we live with an assurance that no one else in the world has. We ought not to be burdened down with guilt and shame because that's what Jesus came to relieve us of. And so we are confident, Paul says, in God's love for us. We are certain about our future with him. We absolutely know that nothing can separate us from God and his love for us. Now, there, there are plenty of people in this world who project an aura of assurance and confidence. You could probably list two or three in your life, your coworkers, your family, your neighbors, who kind of project this confident aura, but the source of that confidence is simply their own chutzpah. It's just a combination of their positive self-image and a short history of their success in whatever they do. But objectively, there is no rational reason for them to be self-assured and confident. Like everyone else, they are mere human and subject to all of the potential trouble and unpredictable calamities that can befall any one of us at any time. But those of us who put our trust and our confidence in Jesus have a reason for assurance that is beyond ourselves. We have linked ourselves with the God of the universe. We've become one with the resurrected Lord. And that, my friends, that's the reason for us having confidence. So Paul closes this passage with kind of three sentences of summary. He says in verse 9, fifth chapter, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. If you're a believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation. God's not waiting to zap you. We need to learn to live with that kind of assurance. And then he says, Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. We live with confidence because God has saved us and isn't angry with us. We face death with assurance that whether dead or alive, we're going to join the resurrected Lord when he returns. And we have this opportunity to encourage and to build each other up.
understand that in your small groups, you, you discuss the message from the previous Sunday. And so I, I just want to encourage you to ask each other some of these questions. Has your worldview changed since you became a believer? And if it hasn't, why hasn't it? Are you living with accountability? Are you actually thinking about what it will be like when Jesus returns and asks you how you used what he has given you? Are you alert to the temptations that have the power to distract you? And would you be willing to share with your small group the particular temptation and distractions that are most attractive to you? It it helps to kind of confess these things to one another. And are you living and facing death with confidence rather than fear and trepidation? May God bless you as you, as a congregation and individually, embrace the transformation that Christ's resurrection has brought both in life and in death. And and may it give you boldness to share that good news with other people because all those living around us have no access to that kind of confidence.